Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. The word is proud media partner of Latitude Festival. For more information and to purchase tickets, go to www.latitudefestival.co.uk. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. This is that we... Oh, I don't know where we started. I'm so excited. <laughs> where did we start? We're both I'll tell you what I'm... We've had an argument about how to do this. I'm going to start here. You start. I, I think there are three <laughs> books about the Beatles that everybody should read. They are Revolution in the Head, the Ian MacDonald yep. analysis of the Beatles music. Love Me Do, the book written by... The uh, American journalist during Beatlemania, as Beatlemania is going on. And the third one, authored by our guest today, Peter Doggett. Welcome, Peter. Could not be more heartily recommended. Thank uh, you very much. And so the question I immediately want to ask you is, where does Hunter Davis fit into that pantheon? Well, I haven't Doesn't gone back it. and read it again. because he's, he's you know, st- He dropped off the end. Yes, yeah, because it was written you know, while the Beatles were still together, 67, 68, or whatever, something yeah. like that, and I can't say I've read it since. Uh, whereas Peter's book, You Never Give Me Your Money... Uh, Mark read it first, didn't you, uh, a few months ago? I read it. was just saying to me about it. Peter, I, I came back with it. My copy was so uh, covered in notation in the index and underlines of things I didn't want to forget that I was mortified that I then forgot the book and left in a hotel in Cornwall. I've just reread nearly all of it over the weekend. And uh, you I, recommended it to me, and I read it and confused equally. And, uh, and I read most of it again this weekend prior to this. So basically, Peter, for those who haven't read it, it's a book about the Beatles after the Beatles, really, isn't it? It starts with the reasons why they broke up, and so I, I, I trace back the origins of the split to more or less when they, they finished touring. And then Brian Epstein dies, and Apple, and Yoko, and all, all the events that we, that we all know about. Um, but I tried to actually get to the truth, the psychological truth, as much as anything else, of how these four guys who'd been so closely knit, who'd gone around the world and watched each other... Uh, Watched each other screwing in in, you know, in Hamburg and hotel rooms around the world. I'm sure how they suddenly came to the point where they couldn't stand to be in the same room as each other. And it, it, the amazing thing to me is that it's 
it's it's as enthralling a story as the kind of myth of them coming together. You know what I mean? It, the thing that struck me out to it, the thing I said to ma- various people, actually, Tony Wasworth, who was on the podcast last week, and Tony used to run EMI, and uh, we were talking who, afterwards. Who read this book and said that... And, and Tony has read this book so, and thought it was equally... Everything is true. Everything is true. It was a very good testimonial. That... You know, loads of people made TV films about the rise of the Beatles, you know, Hamburg and you know, the, the Lennon film that came out last year or whatever. But actually, you read this book and you think, this is the film? This is the film? Them in their 30s, you know, locked together in this terrible situation. I've, uh, I've always thought if, if, if it would be a wonderful idea, and I shouldn't be giving it away, away to you guys, really, but... Um, if you took the dialogue from January 69, when the, when the four Beatles are locked in Twickenham Film Studios, hating each other, and just made that into a Samuel Beckett or Harold Pinter type yeah. play, yes. four people going round in a circle endlessly, not hating them. Oh, there's a marvellous expression you use about halfway through. You say it's like a, it's like a play with, with uh, no movement or character development, which I thought was extremely well put. Yeah, yeah. And it starts... And I think what we should do is to try and get Peter to encapsulate, which is extremely difficult, at this point, the basis of the falling out between the Beatles... This is post... Let's, to recap, Epstein has died. They have right. no manager. <clears throat> they're not they're touring in, anymore. They're not touring anymore. They've decided to devote themselves to the studio and make records. And without the constant pressure of work, Lennon, and in fact the others eventually, admit that they find themselves are just depressed a lot of the time. They're depressed because they're not working. They, they want to become a, a... Well, in fact, he becomes like a permanent statement, an art statement. Everything he does has to be validated by the fact that he is working. Otherwise, he sits at home getting miserable. But just to recap, three of them have decided that Alan Klein should be the manager of the group, a man that uh, that, um, that Derek Taylor describes as the essential in the pantomime as the demon king. Mm. One of them, McCartney, wants... Is in fact, his future father-in-law... Lee Eastman to manage the group, and you'd say that Eastman and and um, uh, Klein are like two uh, colourblind men discussing a rainbow. <laughs> no harmony could ever be reached. It's brilliant. <laughs> so, c- can you take the story up from that point? That, that's from the that major point. friction, isn't yeah. it? And, of course, the extra ingredient you haven't mentioned is Yoko Ono. And of course, Yoko no, Ono. I mean, I'm, I'm not one of the people who blames Yoko for breaking up the Beatles. I've got a lot of time for her art. I've got, I even enjoy a lot of her records. Um, but she significantly altered the balance of power between the Beatles because she enabled John Lennon to see himself and his own life and his art in a different way. And you've already mentioned the fact that every, everything suddenly became art. Everything was a concept. Getting up in the morning, cleaning his teeth—that's a record. It's a book. It's a <laughs> Absolutely. film. Multimedia experience. I mean, he was years ahead of his, of his time. But completely that. changed his confidence, yeah. which I never realised that because he's at home going through this terrible envy mm. of McCartney. Again, I didn't realise the extent of that. McCartney's in London, life's going brilliantly. He's meeting all these avant-garde composers. He's hanging around in art galleries, and Lennon's feeling completely removed from the whole thing. And suddenly, this girl says, "Believe that you are the greater artist." And and, and the interesting thing for me about their meeting is that John. At that point was fantastically sceptical about the avant-garde, about all the hip oh. theatre people um, you know, but, but as you say, Paul McCartney's in London listening to, to uh, Stockhausen That's right. and um, I don't know meeting people like Bridget Riley and so on and John Lennon's at home punching the channels on his TV over and over and over, trying to get some stimulation. Trying to get inspiration from and the I, Daily Mail. Yeah, that's I, right. And I think if he had gone to see an exhibition, exhibition by any other artist, apart from Yoko Ono, who was just about the only artist in the world in 1966 who was saying yes and not no, 
gloom, death, misery. Yes, good point. Then he just would have gone, oh, unprintable words, and gone back home again, and maybe the Beatles would still be going today. You just don't know. But, but she, she made a very good point in an interview. I'm not sure if it's in your book, um, where she said that I get blamed for all this. And, of course, uh, rightly, she, she, she mm. broke the inner circle. She became, ruined the rapport between them. And we'll come on to later the famous story. I know Dave wants to bring up uh, bringing the bed into the studio. Yeah. But we'll get on to that. But um, you know, she did say, and I thought it was really interesting that Lennon had wanted to leave the group for a long time. He would not have attended the studio and made those records and collaborated in them. The last two, had she not been with him, which I thought was quite an interesting point. Do you think that's true? Um, it, it's her point of view, of course. Um, it, it's, I, I've always found it really interesting that, given any opportunity, John would avoid going to the studio. So that, for example, if, if there was a George Harrison song on the agenda, he would be out of there. He would sort of, he'd have a car crash almost. Suddenly, be busy. Almost to avoid having to play on "Here Comes the Sun" or whatever. Um, I think she managed to persuade him that it was worth carrying on because she could see the publicity value for her own art at the same time. I certainly don't think she came in and thought, "Oh, good, a Beatle, I can use him." But having fallen in love with him and vice versa, I think she was aware that this is good. I like this position. Absolutely. And, and you brilliantly d- describe her, I think, as being uh, trying to become the, the, the physical personification of the peace movement. Again, which is really interesting that she had... That was her decision, wasn't it? I'm going to be representative of mm. this thing with him. So she was completely um, getting a lot of value out of the whole relationship. And, it, uh, and that, that, that also ends up with the, the, the bizarre contradiction of this very aggressive, cynical, nasty man sitting in bed in his pyjamas. And if there's anybody who's not a pyjama guy, it's John Lennon. And, yeah, he, yes, and he's, he's there in 1969 <laughs> holding up things saying, peace, love. And not surprisingly, anybody, especially the Beatles, who's known him for years, is thinking, what the hell is this crap, you know? This is John Lennon. This is the guy who wanted to punch me in the face last week. And he's Mr. Peace and Love. Now, I'm sorry, we've got to introduce the bed story. Just yep. to give an indication yep. here of the, the lack of kind of diplomacy that was involved in introducing somebody else into the Beatles. Tell us the story about the bed, Peter. Um, as I've already mentioned, John and Yoko had a car crash um, in Scotland because John Lennon was one of the world's worst drivers. He had passed his test at about the 14th attempt. But, um, and eventually, John. Why is that not surprising? <laughs> I don't know why. Mirror well, manoeuvre, John. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Clutch to the biting point. <laughs> um, and this is at the start of the Abbey Road sessions in the summer of '69. Um, now, the, the previous time the four Beatles had tried to get together, it had basically ended in a fist fight between John and Paul, pretty much over finance, not over music. And so they're very wary about coming back in again. And then, oh, John's not there. And for a week, um, Paul, George and Ringo have a great time, as if it's Hamburg again, and they can enjoy themselves. And they, they make huge progress on Abbey Road. And then there's this feeling of fear, and it's like, oh, the boss is going back <laughs> on holiday. Depression, what, what's going to happen? And John comes in, oh, that's OK. Oh, oh, it's not so bad. He says, hello, you know, that's, oh, that's all right. And then, oh, there's some guys from Harrods turning up. What are they doing here? <laughs> Oh, it's it's a bed, and there's <laughs> medics coming in and everything. And sure enough, in comes Yoko Ono on a bed, wheeled in, and she is going to be a spectator at at, at this at the rest of the Abbey Road sessions. She's hurt her back. She wants to be with John. John wants her to be with him, and so she is going to be in the studio on on this bed. And they literally plump up the pillow. He does. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Maybe get to Lucas Aid in a jigsaw. <laughs> You'll be all better. It's, it's, <laughs> what strikes me is it, 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 fascinating is that they had no means of t- 
talking about something like that, did they? It wouldn't have happened in the in the ordinary setup, would it? Somebody would have said, "You can't do that." Yeah. Somebody would have rung somebody the night before and said, mm. "You know, Yoko was thinking of coming and <laughs> bringing you a bed." And somebody said, "I'm mm. not so sure that's a good but idea." But I think it proves but, but your point. You know that his level of self belief with her was so high that I'm not sure he thought of that as being um, an appalling uh, gaff. <laughs> I think he thought of that as just what John Lennon does. Mm. At this point, he believes he's sort of Jesus Christ, doesn't he? I mean, didn't he say? I think... uh, he certainly had an acid trip after which he went into Apple and said he was Jesus Christ. Yeah, and they all had a board meeting about it and then said, OK, any other business? And <laughs> You've been in board meetings when people say, I'm Jesus Christ. Yes, it's really bad. Yes, messianic report. It doesn't play well. <laughs> Item seven. That doesn't get minutes. Messiah complex. <laughs> so that's John Lennon. And you can tell us about the, the other three. You know, what, what was going on in their lives at that uh, the time that the Beatles were starting to fall apart? And, and what was it that they wanted? Uh, Paul McCartney wanted to be in the Beatles forever. He wanted to have John Lennon as his songwriting partner forever. Um, I talk about it in the book as being, when that, when that partnership is fractured, I talk about it as being like the breakup of a marriage. And I'm not trying to suggest there was ever any sexual yeah. you know, relationship between John and Paul, definitely not. But for, as far as Paul was concerned, maybe because of the age when he was when his mother died, he was 13 or 14, maybe because John was older and he got that sort of, um, what's the word, validation from his, this old, old, older guy yeah. who's prepared to, you know, I think he had a real sense of insecurity the whole time he was in the Beatles. And he could he woke up every morning thinking, I can't believe it, John Lennon's still writing with me. Yeah. And, and that survived even through the whole period when actually Paul was carrying the Beatles. He was writing three quarters of the songs. He was the one who was the PR guy. He was keeping he everything was the energy, together. wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. very yeah. much so. Yeah. I mean, if they d- had to depend on John Lennon in 66, 67, you would have had no Revolver, no Pepper, no Magical Mystery Tour, probably no White Album either. But uh, sorry to, to break off and just go back to John Lennon for a second. When you're talking about that dependence, thing you make the point that john lennon always expected really somebody else to be in charge mm. that aunt mimi had always been in charge of him and the beatles had always been in charge of him and that yoko was in charge mm. of him and when, you know later on when he broke up with her he just couldn't bear it could he no he, he, he always wanted a boss basically he wanted a savior come guru come somebody who could actually point him in the right direction every day right. and, and then after that he wanted to pretend to be the boss yes. yeah but, but that allowed him to be gosh we see this formula all over the place don't we in creative circles that allowed him to be this kind of freewheeling mm. creative genius with no responsibility at all but also allowed him to carp at the people who were supposedly bossing him around yeah. without whom he couldn't survive mm-hmm. so you got McCartney hoping the Beatles are going to go on forever what about George and Ringo well, let's, let's, let's just talk a, a tiny on. bit more about McCartney yep. because um, as I've said he, he, he feels validated by working with John Lennon even though he's in a fantastically creative period he is the Beatles representative in swinging London and also in avant-garde London. And suddenly John Lennon comes in and says, oh, I've got an avant-garde artist, and she's coming in the studio. And suddenly Paul is completely trumped. Um, here is his best friend playing with his deck of cards, and he can't do it anymore. And so he, at that, that point, almost immediately, he turns about face and abandons the avant-garde. And it so happens that that's also a time when he's met Linda and he's 
and he's and she's got a daughter and he's starting to think about family and farm and so on right. and that enables john lennon who has been mr non-avant-garde to come in and say oh i was always the avant-garde one which is the story you still get from yoko today and it explains why Paul has spent the last 20 years with his book with Miles and so on, trying to say, no, it was me, oh, it was absolutely. me. Oh, yes. And, of course, everybody else then says, oh, shut up, it wasn't you, it was yes, John Lennon. John. <laughs> yes. So I, what songs was he writing? That's a really interesting point. So he, he then stopped, because he'd been going through his big experimental phrase. So what are you saying he went back to writing things like Maxwell Silverhammer? Maxwell Silverhammer, yes. I suppose, yeah. Um, yeah. And, and songs that about his love for Linda which yeah. was not very trendy in 1969 no. whereas John Lennon always managed to make it conceptual in a way when he was writing about right. Yoko right. so what about the other two um, George, well George is the George and, and David Bowie who I've just finished writing about getting in a plug for my next book <laughs> um, plug away um, they were the two guys in 1966 who hated everything that was happening I mean everybody else I, 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 how old was I in 66 I was nine okay so I missed it um, so one of my fantasies is to go back and be, I don't know, maybe 14, 15, 18 yeah. in 1966 and just to see what it was like. But the guys who were there, George Harrison, thought it was just crap. He, no, this is nonsense. And the same with David Bowie as well. What but didn't he like about he it? Didn't, he didn't like the hippie movement. He didn't, although he was taking lots of drugs, he didn't like drugs. He didn't like the... the um, I, I suppose the rampant consumerism of that time, which was dressed up as being idealism, so that you have the car whole Carnaby Street culture. Yeah. But at the same time, it's actually all about owning objects and possessions and things. I mean, and more contradictions. I mean, he is the, the most, um, I, I suppose, contradictory guy almost in rock history because he is Mr. Money and Mr. Yeah. I don't oh, care completely. about money. Yeah. Mr. Spirituality yeah, and Mr. Mr. Sex. Fast cars. Mr. Yeah, Sex. Exactly. Oh, you're yeah. Sex. Exactly. We might get onto that later. On. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Phenomenal. You might have to alert the libel lawyers. For that. <laughs> yes. So, so, so he, he from 66 is looking for a way out of the Beatles anyway. But at the same time, when it comes down to it, when they actually break up um, and officially in 1970, he is the one who is actually going behind the scenes and trying to maybe, maybe it would be okay if we got back together. So it obviously occupied some kind of place in his um, psyche. There's a, there's a absolutely, oh, there's so many fascinating moments in it, but, but there's one which really, really hit me reading your book where you realise that these boys have been together in this gang, you know, since they were teenagers. And when the gang threatens to disintegrate around them, they all, th three of them anyway, one of them doesn't, run off and try and form alternative gangs, don't they? So, so John Lennon has got his plastic Ono band, um, he's got all his peace activists, he's got Yoko, he's got a new mob around him. George Harrison has got, he immediately goes off and composes a song with Bob Dylan as a massive trump card to the <laughs> others, doesn't he? Follow that, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. sitting in your house in Titnurse mm. Park, you know, reading, yeah, reading yeah. the Daily Mail. And, and then Ringo like, Starr's going off and obviously working in, in various mm. movies and uh, trying to get his um, uh, old musical record together. And in fact, McCartney comes across as phenomenally alienated. He's the one who leaves with just the wife and, and, the, mm. and, the, and the stepchild to try and, you know, patch himself together again. Yeah. It, it, it was that, he really was completely out on a limb, wasn't he? I mean, he said in lots of interviews more recently, I mean, a lot of the stuff he said is extremely revisionist, but that one theme always comes through when he talks about it. He was really depressed for almost the whole of 1970. And exactly that thing you, you mentioned yeah. earlier, Mark, about um, the you know, intense energy. He put everything into keeping the Beatles together. And then not only did, did that not work, but then he was blamed for it as well. When Completely. He, I, I ended up feeling such... such 
uh, en- enormous sympathy for him at the end, no, the end of writing the book because of that. Because uh, like ever, like the rest of us, I'd grown up in, in, in John Lennon's version of the world. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. He was the one who gave such fantastic interviews. I mean, did either of you ever interview him? No, no. No, no, no right, no. OK. So, but he, I, I would imagine he's somebody that we all wish we could have sat down oh, for a couple of hours with because of that passion and that energy. And, and because of that, and because he interviewed so much better than either Harrison or McCartney, and, of course, Ringo is the drummer, um, we, he, we... he I've interviewed Ringo. He's <laughs> <Yeah, laughs> excellent, actually. You're not, you're not asking me enough questions about my new album. <laughs> yeah, I got that, actually, yeah. yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you're so right. So um, let's just let's clear up all the Beatles. So we get with Ringo. What's Ringo thinking? Ringo is, is dependent on the rest of them. He's dependent on the rest of them. Writing songs yep. and giving them a call. He is the one who has managed to not piss off the rest of them as well. So fundamentally, they all love him, and he, on some level, knows that. So he knows he's going to be OK because they're going to be there. And I, I think I mentioned in the book there was this wonderful moment about 1970 when he's done his album of musical songs for his mum, he's making a country album, he's making a pop record with Stephen Stills and George Harrison, or starting to, which is It Don't Come Easy, and he's also making an electronic album with um, one of the Bee Gees, I think Morris Gibb, and he is suddenly going to be the uh, polymath of the Beatles, if only he had the energy to actually get through and finish, I mean... Goodness knows what a Ringo Starr electronic album would have sounded like. <laughs> but just, ima- just imagine him coming out in 1971 as Mr. Electronic Country Music, pop singing... Mr. Renaissance mo- Man. Movie, <laughs> yeah, movie star. I mean, incredible. And uh, sadly, he lacked the courage or the energy to follow that through and just had to be a drummer instead, a very good drummer. Should it, should so as they started to talk about breaking up the Beatles and, you know, whether Paul has left first or John has left first or whatever, I get the impression reading your book that all of them wanted a break, they wanted to get away, but all of them probably in the back of their mind thought, we might get back together again. We probably will. I, I think so. And the, the, the thing I always say about this is that all four of them wanted to get back together but never at the, at the same time. And it was almost like a, de- a defence thing, a defence mechanism. It was OK for them all to want to get back together because they always knew that one of them would say no. That it would never happen. Yes, yeah. absolutely right. And, and it was never the same one. It wasn't always George being miserable, although he was often miserable, but it wasn't always him saying... Oh, I don't want to do it. I'm, I'm Mr. Spirituality. Yeah, but also it, it could be Ringo sometimes yeah. as well. Yeah. And, and you, you think that I, I certainly inherited the idea that, that 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 the group had fallen out and there was absolutely no chance that they would be getting together at all. And maybe towards the end, just before the death of Lennon, there was a possibility. As is untrue, isn't it? I mean, because there were negotiations going on all the time. It was a brilliant mm. bit in 1972, I think, where McCartney arranges a meeting with with Lennon, then rings to cancel at the last minute, and Derek Taylor says, "Well, it's a good thing he did cancel because Lennon wasn't going to go either." <laughs> right. So neither of them are going. Attack, yeah. but they're just showing willing. I mean, aren't they? Just, <laughs> yeah. They're waving the tiniest little olive branch at each other. And, and I was amazed to discover that the, th- the thing that really, really surprised me was because I, I'd ne- I could never work out why. John, uh, let's get this right. John, George, and Ringo actually left Alan Klein or sacked him as their manager in '73. And I um, then spoke to um, the guy who was running Apple Records in America, who, because of extreme old age, I can't remember his name, but um, he said that he'd had a phone call from George apologising, saying that we're going to have to get rid of Alan Klein and Abco because it's the only way we can get back together with Paul. Uh, and this is at the start of 73, about the time that the Red, Red and Blue albums come out. Right, so and, that, was the, that was the thing standing in the way of any yeah. rapprochement between them. Um, and, of course, as soon as that happened, I can't remember which one of them then gave an incendiary interview just to make sure it wasn't going to happen. <laughs> So, Almost certainly Lennon. Yeah. I mean, that incredible interview you gave to, to Jan Wenner, mm. where he's just 
absolutely just crucifies each mm. member of the group, each member of the Apple organisation who supported him, uh, the Queen of England. Yeah. Oh, nobody escapes his wrath. And then when they talk to him afterwards, George Martin talks to him afterwards and says, you know, I was really hurt by that. He said, oh, did you bother to read it? Oh, you know, I never thought you would. <laughs> and of course, everybody forgave him, and he mm. knew that he'd be forgiven because which, John Lennon. Which so. is what Derek Taylor said to me. He said John always spoke on the basis that he knew it would be OK afterwards. If you'd like to get each and every Word podcast a whole day early, have access to all the hundreds of Word podcasts we've done over the last five years, and want to keep in touch with everything going on on our website, then you need the Word podcast app for iPhone and iTouch. The Word podcast is the form of entertainment that civilization has been working towards. A bunch of people stuck in a wardrobe talking utter bollocks. Search for the Word Podcast app on iTunes. It costs £3.99, practically giving it away, as opposed to actually giving it away, which is what we've been doing so far. So they decide that they they want to break from it, they want to, you know, stop being tied to each other. But as your book makes plain, it wasn't as easy as that, was it? Is it possible to explain, in simple terms, how the Beatles were tied to each other in business terms? Oh, my goodness. I wish I had my lawyer with me as well. Um, they had signed a joint contract back when they, were, when they started, um, and they became the Beatles and Company, or the Beatles Limited. Uh, um, You'll have to forgive me. It's two, two and a bit years since I, read, uh, since I wrote the book now. But, um, and so they were always in that partnership, regardless what else happened. It didn't matter how many other contracts they tore up and threw away. They were always, always had to be linked, um, but because... Even if they did nothing for the rest of their lives, there were still the Beatles. There was still the legacy of that to deal with. They still had a quarter of it. And at various times, George and John both said, we want to give up our quarter. And it just proved legally impossible. And so they're still tied together, which is why you still have board meetings at Apple now with Yoko, Olivia, Paul and Ringo. Or right. representatives. Because occasionally in the book there's people saying, right, can we, can we have a cashing up now? Can we have oh. an accounting? I'd like to go away with yeah. my large, with my quarter of the Beatles. Yeah. In, yeah. in, in a big holiday money. somewhere. And, yeah. and then I'll never see you again. And that just, and common sense to most people would dictate that that was possible. Mm. But of course it's not, is it? Because the... the it's not. It's not one. Not just one company. I mean, Apple was something like I don't know, a hundred companies around the world, and then there's music publishing companies and film companies, and goodness knows what else. And there's always lawsuits as well. And um, I was. I never ceased to be amazed by the Beatles' um, capacity for suing each other at the same time as they were getting together to sue other people. Right. So they were always able to do that. So if it suited them on the same day to go to court in the morning and all sue EMI. And then go in the afternoon, half of them sue the other half. That was fine. It was just like the Ruttles. I mean, that was no exaggeration. Right, right. Another thing, again, tied in with this is, and you alluded to earlier with that thing about Ringo and what he was trying to do after the Beatles split up, which fascinates me that the level of competition that they maintained throughout the next ten years, obviously because they were competitive within the group, but once out of the group, an extraordinary dynamic, a very unexpected dynamic emerges, which is that George Harrison becomes the most successful mm. Beatle. He's produced All Things Must Pass. He's produced a record based on all the songs that they had rejected. 
Didn't he once write a song called Run of the Mill or a moment? Yeah, it's yeah, Run of the Mill. It's, it's on it. It's yeah. Lo- lovely song, brilliant song. Yeah, yeah. which was yeah. just a, you know obviously a, 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 an allusion to the fact that that's what Lennon and McCartney mm. thought his work yeah. was. Number two, as you alluded to earlier, is, is, is Ringo Starr. Number three is McCartney with his solo album, well respected but didn't sell enormous. Mm. Actually, bottom commercially least successful, John Lennon in 1972. Certainly, in 72, yes. yeah. unbelievable. So Lennon had to deal with that, mm. and having been in his own mind top dog and the drummer and the lead guitarist virtually ignored suddenly discovers these people are selling more records than him which which is really interesting as you say psychologically and to his credit in the interviews he gave in the mid 70s just before he you know, retired for five years he did more or less come to terms with that and say oh you know okay well i don't think people remember who i am anymore he was always amazed when he when anybody would recognize him on the street so i think in uh, to some degree he had managed to adjust himself to uh, life beyond yes, the Beatles. there was some humility, wasn't there? Mm. Yeah. But then they had, uh, because of Apple, they were all putting out solo albums, and they all had to take an interest in how well each other's solo albums did, didn't they? Um, because they, yeah. they all benefited from... They did. This, is, this again, it was, a, it was a very complicated legal thing, but um, I think in 1973, the Beatles' royalties were going to go up in America substantially for all their records, solo and group records, if their previous records, uh, previous two or three, had all sold over a certain number. Half I think, a million. Half a million, yeah. right. And, of course, at that point, John Lennon decides to put out Sometime in New York City, which is <laughs> the least... Oh, uh, thank you. Yeah, <laughs> which you know, I've, got a, I've got a soft spot for. I loved it. As a teenager, I absolutely loved it. But... I, love, I love things like that. There's another brilliant bit where... The, the, the ter- tortuous uh, negotiation with Alan Klein. Alan Klein's getting a certain percentage, I think it's 10% of mm. their individual projects. And uh, he's less interested in bag productions when Lennon announces he's going to give all their proceeds to the peace movement. So, <laughs> yeah. so what's in it for Alan Klein anymore? Yeah. It's absolutely brilliant. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I mean, the Beatles and lawsuits. I mean, at some point, George Harrison has to write himself a letter um, removing himself from his own company. And then he has to write to himself again the next day to say, "Can I now rejoin my company?" Just for for, for reason, no, for tax reasons or whatever. So George Harrison he was really writing to George Harrison. Oh, yeah. But then the classic case of the people, and I mean, we're all guilty of this, who who don't really listen when we're talking to accountants and so forth. You know, they they they. They paid the price of sort of pretending to understand the deals they were getting into. Is that true? I don't think they ever even pretended. Um, (laughs) Particularly in the case of John Lennon, and actually George as well, both of them, um, if they met somebody and liked them down the pub or in the the, the, uh, Cromwellian or wherever it was, um, if they liked them, they trusted them. They had an innate faith in in other people. Like making Mal Evans the president of Apple. Yeah, exactly. Or Alan Klein. Yeah. Alan Klein had also lost his mother and he liked 50s doo-wop. So, okay, you're in. Fine. You make a great yeah. uh, manager. Yeah. <laughs> it ticks um, every box. <laughs> ex- exactly. So I don't think there was ever an occasion where any of them, even George, who was Mr Moneybags in the 60s, I don't think any of them, any of them ever sat down and tried to read you know, beyond line one of a, of a contract. They just trusted whoever stuck it in front of them. It, um, and, of course, if Alan Klein g- gives John Lennon a, a contract, he's going to go, oh, it's, it's Alan, it's fine, yeah, I'll sign that. Yeah, yeah. And so they made all the mistakes that everybody else then could avoid later on. Um, for the very good reason that nobody had ever been in their position before, that there was this no is guide. Book. This is it. Absolutely. I think that's yeah. the thing that struck me this weekend. Reading really, it again, there had never been a story like this before, where there'd been four people who'd, who'd been responsible for uh, generating these these artistic copyrights that were likely to be so valuable in the future. And the authorship of them was was all so tied up, and the history was so tied up. There'd never been anybody like and, that. And before. they themselves, in the duration of of the group, never believed that it would have that kind of um, no. 
that, you know, of the interviews in 1964 where all, Ringo's still saying he's going to go and buy a string of hairdressers and yeah. he can't imagine this is going to carry on much longer. So none of them is in under... And when the group appears to be splitting up, they think that is effectively the end of their career. Mm. They've got no idea that, you know, 40 years later, people well, are talking about Well, after the death of two them. of them, that, you know, yeah. still generating fortunes. Now, this is a key point, because everybody tends to think that if you've had loads of hit records, and boy, the Beatles had loads of hit records in the 60s, you've got a load of money. And, you know, you need never work again. But at the time, in the early 70s, they were, they were cash poor, weren't they? Is that it, fair to say? Extremely. Yeah. Well, um, so certainly up till 69, when Alan Klein renegotiated and did a very good job of renegotiating the Beatles' record contract and got them the highest royalty in the world at, at that point. Up to that point, they were, they were getting a farthing a record or whatever it was. Um, and so you know, for every million records, they got six and fourpence or something, and, which was just the way it was in the music business. Um, all performers were, were cash cows. They'll come in, they'll be famous for a year, we'll milk them dry, get rid of them, and then the next pop singer will come along. Yeah. Um, obviously, by the, yeah, by the early 70s, once, the, once the, the, the contracts have been renegotiated and they signed new solo deals and so on, um, they were actually comparatively well off for rock stars. But, I mean, if you talk to any of these guys, Pete Townsend, you know, Mick, Mick and Keith, I mean, they're all... They'd all have the same story to, to tell you. Up until the seventies, they didn't make it that big. Doesn't doesn't John Lennon have to do something with his publishing in order to pay a builder who's working on um, Tittenhurst Park? That's right. He's having extension because he's got to get twenty yeah. grand. Yeah. Now I know yeah. twenty grand in you know late sixties was an awful lot more than it is now, but mm. you still can't believe that mm. John Lennon needed access to twenty grand in order right. to pay off a builder. But and they of did. Yeah, and of course the thing that made the difference for the Stones and the Who and all their contemporaries was that they taught. They carried on touring. The 70s, 80s, 90s. They had cash coming in all the time. Which, of course, Paul McCartney did. But the thing that made Paul McCartney rich was was not his own music so much as music publishing. Um, Now, I I can fully understand why the other three Beatles didn't want Lee Eastman as their manager, because it's Paul's father-in-law. Is he going to be biased? No, wouldn't have thought so. (laughs) But but purely in terms of making money, he was the guy who did a fantastic job for, for Paul, and his son, John Eastman, continues to do so to this day. I mean, they bought up music publishing catalogues at a time when nobody else was doing that. And so McCartney now owns, well, you know, as, as well as I do, you know, Hollywood musicals and Buddy, Buddy Holly. Holly. And, and, and the other three would have resented that oh, ability yeah. to be so, to have such kind of fun mm. commercial nows. Definitely. Another thing I wanted to ask you about, which fascinates me so much, is that throughout, because it, 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 I want to hear what you think this tells you about this extraordinary relationship between them. In these terrible moments, the darkest hours, you know, when um, they've just signed the, the, the contract with Alan Klein and they've done a deal with the board at Apple, whereby McCartney is not even allowed to vote on this, they still go into the studio the next day and record something. I think I'm right. Is it something? Yeah. Which you could right. argue yeah. is just one of the finest pieces of McCartney's mm. uh, bass guitar. It's genius. Mm. And, and, and it's like they record because... 12 hours of these phenomenal three-part mm. harmony school choir vocals at the moment, again, when Yoko Ono is actually in the room in the bed. Yeah. You know, uh, John Lennon rings up Paul McCartney, again, at their lowest ebb, that says, will you come and help me make a single called The Ballad of John and Yoko about the <laughs> about girl an you asshole detest, you <laughs> about what an arsehole yeah. you are, yeah. about me wanting to leave the Beatles and me being Jesus Christ, I want to put it out on the same label as the Beatles. Would you come and help me record all the parts because I can't play them? Answer, yes. yes. He turns up at nine o'clock the next morning. And it turns out that both of, both of them then, then actually remember that as they 
been one of their favourite Beatles sessions. One of their favourite Beatles. Despite exactly. the fact that the day before, they were probably trying to kill each they, other. They were actually, I think, were fisticuffs. Yeah. Lennon goes round to Cavendish Avenue, bangs on the door and tries to punch him. Mm. So how, how do you think that that, that works? I, I, it, it fascinates me. Psychological separation on the part of John Lennon, the ability to keep two... What's the... I'm, very, I'm in a pretentious mood. What's, what, the, what's the Scott Fitzgerald quote about? It's the um, uh, sign of a first-class intelligence to be able to hold two contradictory ideas in the brain at the same time and still function. John Lennon. Not pretentious at all. No, totally <laughs> we are. That's um, and um, he could do that. He could hate Paul McCartney and love Paul McCartney on the same, at the same time. And anyway, one of them was, poly- was business and one of them was music. And what, what have they got to do with it? Well, right, and you say right at the very beginning, brilliantly, you say that they had this way of dealing with their weaknesses so that only their strengths came through. This is artistically, obviously. Mm. And that must be true, that uh, in these terrible moments, they were still able to put all that aside yeah. and think that without these other musicians, I couldn't make this, I couldn't mm. make this music. And this carries on into the 70s. Where, where Completely. You're, it, it, 73, 74, when they're all making solo albums every five five minutes when they're not in the studio they're in court almost every day and how um for example john lennon made wars and bridges when he's also going to, he's got three or four lawsuits going paul mccartney's doing band on the run around that Stop time you. and yet they're still keeping this output and they're still being sort of thumbs up macker in the press and everything but behind the scenes they're faced with bankruptcy and you know, torture and having to testify against each other and so on and yet so again they kept the two things separate it's interesting, isn't it? Another way of looking at a group which struck me um, looking at this is that um, one of the great things that a group does is it uses the best parts of people's personality, of the members' personalities, and suppresses the least creative parts of their personalities because it doesn't need them, you know yeah. what I mean? Mm. So George's self-piteous streak didn't surface in the Beatles, really. You know, Ringo's... You know, alcoholism later on, you know, mm. propensity towards... You know, Ringo underneath, it's very interesting you talk about this, that that, uh, that the world decided Ringo was going to be happy-go-lucky Ringo. Mm. So he was happy-go-lucky Ringo forevermore. But actually, probably underneath, there's a lot of sadness in Ringo's oh, life. Huge, yeah. 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 So Paul's, Paul's mm. manipulation and so forth, it, was, it wasn't needed particularly in the Beatles. You know, Lennon's hectoring tone wasn't needed in the Beatles. But as soon as the Beatles weren't there, all these unpleasant characteristics mm. of each of them came to the surface. Yeah. Because they'd just been been like being in the army for ten years or whatever. It well, sort the, of hadn't needed But the there. press had to call us like, like George being called the quiet one at his most superficial level. That was because he was at the first conference, wasn't he? And that's when he's so yeah, ill. So, he, so they think he can't perform yeah. Yeah. on the what would it be, the Ed Sullivan show. Mm. He's not even in the rehearsal, isn't yeah. he? He's put to bed. So he can't speak in the conference he's, he's the quiet one. <laughs> Actually wasn't the quiet one at all. I interviewed mm. him twice. Garrulous, really funny, mm. really waspish. Really bitter. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. So, do you see? Do you see this uh, this situation with you know the Beatles still exist? You know, Paul and Ringo, and there's Yoko, and there's Olivia, and there's no doubt board meetings, and they have to discuss what they're going to do over which new item of technology mm-hmm. they could potentially make a million out of. Do you see this continuing after they've all gone? Is this oh, going to pass completely. on to the next generation? Not just the next generation. Their, their grandchildren, their great-grandchildren will really? always be locked into a relationship with each other. It's inescapable. And it's, it's like a, you know, a family curse, isn't it? Never mind the, the, the Montagues and the Capulets. I mean, the Lennons and McCartneys is going to go on for much, much longer. But who is the Beatles now? So that's Ringo Starr, Paul McCartney, Olivia Harrison and, and Yoko. Yoko. Oh, yep. And so there will be... In successive years, there'll be a different versions of that lineup, won't there? 
Am I, I right? Those, uh, yes, those I, are the Beatles. I, I, I presume Danny I'm Harris. I'm talking about legally here. Yeah. And uh, Danny Harrison. Danny Harrison yeah. will take over. I yeah. imagine it will be left to Sean Lennon rather than to Julian. Yes, Lennon. probably. Um, and goodness knows which of Paul's children will have the curse of uh, <laughs> having to carry, carry this on. The same with Ringers. And, and of course, they've all got managers and they've all got lawyers and they've all got their own setups as well. Yeah. How, how do you. What do you speculate might possibly have happened? This is an absolutely impossible question. So John Lennon remains alive. Yeah. In and so in the 1980s, they were they were inches away from playing. I think they did once play. Am I right at a wedding or am I imagining? Um, Eric Clapton's, Eric Clapton's wedding. wedding. Yeah. Before the, the, oh God, I'm so sorry. <laughs> That's our lawyer. Lawyer. Yes. <laughs> I don't think John Lennon. Don't, was there. No, I'm not going to talk about George's sex life. No problem. Hang on. <laughs> <laughs> Liz Kershaw's just run me up. Andy Kershaw's sister. Very right. exciting. Yeah. It's his book launch tonight. Anyway, um, what would you speculate? Um, what, what would have happened? The three Beatles played together. The, the three minus John, because he wasn't invited, because nobody thought he'd come, played at Eric Clapton's wedding, very drunkenly, with Denny Lane and various other people. And When was that? Mid-79. 79? Yeah. Okay. And there's no, there's, no, there's no film. There's, there, there's a photograph, I think, of them all sort of slumped over a piano or something with Lonnie Donegan. That, must have, that would have been quite a good band, actually, because Lonnie Donegan would, would have made a good John Lennon, thinking yeah. about yeah. it. Very good. Yeah. Arrogant. And, uh, oh, yeah, yeah. gosh. Yeah. His um, version of Frankie and Jolly, I'm sure John Lennon would have seen. Yeah, watched definitely. very closely. Yeah. Um, Live Aid, 85. George felt as if he was being manoeuvred into turning up to appear with Paul and objected, and therefore he didn't quite get the message from Bob Geldof, so he didn't turn up. Um, would John and Paul have played together in 85 if John was still alive? Yeah, I think so. Um, would it have been tran- transcendent for us watching on TV or you guys were probably there? Yeah, probably, for three minutes. And then that, that would have been it and we all could have got on with our lives afterwards. And it would have spoilt it. Possibly. It? Well, yes, <laughs> the, this was always my thing, was that I was uh, I was always really pleased. As a fan, of course I wanted to turn on my telly or go to Wembley Stadium and see the Beatles. Uh, and I'd still love to, but as a fan, um, I'm, I'm really pleased they didn't because Free as a Bird and Real Love... Nice pop records, but they weren't the Beatles, were they? So. I know. It, don't you think that almost immediately people were embarrassed by those? Mm. It, people just didn't. They never ever speak. I have never ever heard either of those records played on the radio, apart from the week they came out. <laughs> they, they've just—it's just, it's just, yeah. I, I, sorry, just a blanket's been drawn over the whole thing. Well, the thing about the anthology is, apart from the, it, its undoubted interest to anoraks like us, you know, like hearing old stuff. It was just an excuse for the Beatles to have a late late payday, wasn't it? Really, mm. you know what I mean? It was like a bequest from the nation. You didn't get paid enough first time around, boys, and so we'll invent these products. EMI will give you a huge advance to put together those products. They'll sell like gangbusters and then everybody will kind of forget about them two weeks later. <coughs> pretty much what happened. Because the year they came out, they were EMI's biggest money makers, weren't yeah. they? And, For that year, bigger than anything. As they were again when the, when the compilation album came out. Uh, one, that one. album. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so it's just like every ten years, mm. we need some kind of commercial orgy around the Beatles well, like the to make album. everybody feel good about it. The Love Album is another example. Mm. Uh, in principle, it sounded really interesting. You, you strip out the, the component parts of these songs and you rearrange them. It's like taking a, a sort of palette of Beatle colours and then mm. doing a different painting. And when you heard it, brilliant academic exercise, but did, did you want to hear that, Rob? Nobody's going, going home tonight. Nobody's, no, going, nobody's going home tonight. tonight saying, in my left hand, I have the Beatles' love. In my right hand, I have rubber soul. I'll tell you what, I'll play oh, well, love. Well, well, <laughs> I, think it's, I think it's underrated. It's, <laughs> it's not going to happen at all, is it? You know, Because that's the thing that keeps the thing going. 
is the extraordinary enduring quality of those original records. And to when some, you go and back, they never the that the image of the group, it, it, they're still frozen with people in their 20s. Mm. You know, and, and so you don't have to deal with the fact that they now look like the stones or whatever, completely unlike the fabulous creatures of 1965. Yeah, yeah. I think that that permanent youth is a big part mm. of it. And you, you, have to, you have to give Paul McCartney credit for actually managing to keep that alive in his 60s. Completely. By, you know, whatever methods he's used to make himself look from a distance, like Beetle Paul from 65, he still does. Um, he does. From a distance. I mean, I, I haven't seen him close up recently enough to know what he looks like, you know, with, like, like, like a Dolly Parton or Mae West with all the makeup off. You know, I have no idea. <laughs> yeah. But he's... And if you're not listening too carefully, he sounds like the Beatles as well. So, so it's interesting, isn't it? Paul McCartney is... The he, best Beatles tribute act in oh, the world. Oh, completely, yeah. But, but the telling thing, I saw his show at uh, the Hammersmith uh, Odeon at uh, Christmas, which is a, fun, it's a phenomenal, as you know, he plays for two hours, mm. 20 minutes. Yeah. You know, and I think something in the region of 18 of those songs are Beatles songs. Uh, it's the moments in the songs where he's playing on his own, um, Blackbird being a really good example, mm. which get the most applause. Because if he's playing a Beatles song with a load of hired hands, it isn't quite the Beatles. But to see McCartney, as you say, looking quite like, actually, from a distance yeah. to the McCartney of 1907, playing a song that he only ever played on his own, mm. Eleanor Rigby being the other one, those are the ones that raise... So you can see how much people want to go back to this unadulterated version of the Beatles. Um, which is, which is why I end up, I'm sure, in the book somewhere, saying it, it is like a fairy tale, and it's a fairy, t- fairy tale we all still want to believe in. Um, so I was torn writing the book because, as a fan, I, I like the fairy tale as well, and it's made me very happy for a long time. Absolutely. But the, I, I got sick of reading the, the fairy tale, and I just thought, I've, I've lived through this peri- period. I've been a fan from 1970 onwards. They, they weren't talking to each other. They were suing each other. Nobody ever talks about that. Um, I found it really interesting. I, I don't know if there's a connection or not, but I found it really interesting that the week that the hardback version of my book came out in Britain was the week that Paul McCartney gave a, an inter, uh, interview to the Radio Times, the first of a series of interviews where he talked about how close he and John were just before John died and they were talking to each other all the time. And it seemed to be almost as if he was thinking, oh, this book might affect me, might affect that image, therefore I'll cover it up quickly and do lots of big interviews. Um, now, I never thought my book was going to destroy his image, and I didn't want to either. But he he definitely, he needed, maybe he sat down and read the book. Apparently he does read books about the Beatles. And I think he does, and for what yeah. it's worth, if you read that book, he ought to, and I'm sure it's impossible to be able to stand outside of it and see that this book does him a lot of favours. Mm, I he think comes so. comes out of incredibly well. I, and people's sympathy for what these four individuals go through, uh, repeatedly, you say in the book, that... Uh, uh, the only people who can understand the Beatles from the inside mm. are the four people in the Beatles. That everything else is impossible. Yeah, but even the guys like Neil and Derek Taylor and so on couldn't couldn't understand. Absolutely. But at the same time, it also dredges up. I mean, imagine there's a book about you and it's and you come out very sympathetically, but actually they talk to every ex-girlfriend, and um, I don't know. Every time you couldn't get it up in 1978, or you fell over drunk in 1981, it's in the book, and you still come out very fairly, but. Do you want people to read all that stuff? No, no you no, don't. No, no. Don't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the trouble is, he's, he has become public property, and he single-handedly has kept the Beatles myth alive, really, for the last 20 years. And so if he's going to trade on that myth, then I think the myth deserves to be examined. What surprised you most in the writing of it? What did you discover in the writing of it that you um, didn't know before? 
Not so much what I didn't know. It was just putting putting the whole story together and just this overwhelming sense of sadness. I mean, there were times when I was writing mm. the book when I would get to a particular a bit and I would go out and find my wife elsewhere in the house and say, you won't believe what they're just about to do. <laughs> no, no. Can we stop them? You know, Can we do something? And sometimes you'd be laughing hysterically and sometimes I'd be sat there almost on the verge of tears. I bet. You know, why? You know, why? Because I love these guys. Why are they doing this? Uh, the amount of pain that, that you know, mm. just the legal stuff must have caused mm. them. And then the additional tragedy that obviously John Lennon is killed by a nutcase. Yeah. Yeah. George Harrison is nearly killed by a nutcase mm. and then is, you know, cruelly cut down quite, you know, Very earlier young. than he, yeah. he should yep. have been. You know, the pain that these guys yeah. have had to go, gone through. And then at the end of the book, you've got Paul McCartney's second marriage, mm. which is like a massive public humiliation, isn't it? To, to the point that he has to has to admit in court what his security arrangements are at all his houses and his income and his, you know all the all, all the stuff he's kept quiet because he has done a really good job usually about keeping his private life separate from his professional life suddenly it's all out in the open we know where he lives we know where the townhouse is we know where the house over yeah. in america is you know we know who's stationed outside the door almost you know to keep intruders out all that information is out there and there are all the tabloid stories um, basically accusing him of being a wife beater yeah whatever which he he had two choices either either um, you answer it, in which case it's, well, the, it's the old how. how yeah. Did you stop beating your wife? Right. Question, <laughs> or you keep quiet, which is more or less what he did, and uh, yeah. with enormous dignity. But you could see the toll it took on him, and the way he changed physically, and then his voice changed. I'm, I'm sure Mark's the same as me. From reading this book, you, you, there's one key detail that just sticks in your mind. I'll do mine first. When George Harrison writes "My Sweet Lord." Which consciously or unconsciously owes a lot to he's so fine by the chiffons, and you know so he's had the biggest hit outside the Beatles, the biggest hit of his career at a time when the record business is riding high, so he's selling a lot of records, and he has to pretty much take that money and give it to somebody else. Yes, and who has bought? <laughs> who has bought the publishing company? To whom he has to give this money, (laughs) but his then-manager, Alan Klein, yes. And the judge, having seen what Klein has done, um, then (laughs) fixes the the damages to to make sure that Klein doesn't make a profit. So he actually awards the damages to Klein of exactly the amount of money that Klein had paid for the music publishing company. Here is your chalice, Mr Harrison. Would you like a little drop more poison in that? <laughs> oh, have you got enough? The hole and corner dealing by oh, all these people, you mm. know, gathering around and, you know, lawyers. I mean, lawyers. How many lawyers' children must have been sent to Eton on the basis of... I don't know. Oh. Of what the Beatles spent on suing each other. I've, I've lost track of, over the years of a number of people I've met who live in <laughs> nice houses in uh, Park Lane or whatever, um, and who say, oh, yes, yeah, so I've, I've done some work for the Beatles. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Have you seen my yachts? <laughs> it's, it's well, really, well, I, go on. I, I was going to say my equivalent of that, I suppose, is, is George Harrison doing this fantastically uh, open-hearted, generous concert for Bangladesh which is not quite the first rock charity event, yes, but it's the I first big say. one. Yeah, yeah. Um, and 
all proceeds going to charity. He has to fight um, EMI, he has to fight Columbia Records to let them, you know, he has to fight Alan Klein to stop Alan Klein getting the money. And at the end of all that, film, album, concerts, huge amounts of money raised for the starving, it all gets held up because the British government insists on uh, on, on claiming income tax or whatever on everything. It's BAT, wasn't it? Purchase tax? It could be, yeah, it could be. I'm it's not sure which one it was. Yeah. And, and eventually George war. has to write uh, the Inland Revenue a cheque for a million pounds and just say, <laughs> OK, personal cheque. So he loses the million pounds so he can raise that money for charity. It's just, just appalling. Yeah. What's your favourite detail? I, I, I've got so many, and I think I would choose... It's not a great anecdotal uh, bombshell, but just a, it's an emblematic moment, which I like very much, which is the uh, photograph of the cover of Abbey Road. So all this misery is going on. In between the misery, they're making the most spectacular and moving and emotional music. Mm. A lot of it in a coded way about themselves, in fact. And they have managed. Somebody manages to. What was his name? Ian. Can't remember his name. Ian McDonald. Ian McDonald. Ian McDonald. It was weird. He was. Yes, Ian McDonald. Yeah. I think. How strange. McMillan. 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 Yeah, right. Yeah. He's. T- he gets the four boys out of the studio to walk across the zebra crossing. <laughs> there are. I've seen all. I think there's only five or six maximum exposures. Mm. And Lennon, in your book at the front, mutters he's had enough. They've only been doing it for two minutes. He's had enough. He says, "I'll keep in step" or something. And that idea that they can't keep in step somehow that seems so symbolic <laughs> they can't keep in step you know for for, for a second longer than they have to mm. and uh, there is only one picture usable yeah and they're all actually in step because they can't bear to be in each they other's cannot company. bear and so as soon as as soon as all the duties for that album are done they never get together in the same room again after 1969 that's right and you think about that in terms of they're every, never uh, again in the same room no i think it's august 69 is the last time they do the the photo shoot at uh George, is it George's house, John's house. John's house, that's right. Yeah, by the lake. Um, yep, and with Yoko, with Yoko, with of Patty Boyd taking a Super Eight film. Yep, it because she thinks Which no one a, will ever see them yeah. again. And after that, the, I, I, I think perhaps there's one business meeting a week or so afterwards. But they will have to be there and sign a contract. And otherwise, you never get the four guys together. And yet, yeah. every morning that they woke up for the rest of their lives, they must have thought they were thinking about, the about other. each other. Mm. <laughs> I tell you what, as a little PS to this, I told you what I saw last week on the Travelling Wilbury site. They put out, I think, for just one day, a little film about the Travelling Wilburys coming together, which, of course, George was the kind of leaping light of. When was that, Travelling Wilburys? 88, And it's a really poignant little film because. You can tell George just desperately wants to be in a group. In a gang. Yeah. Yeah. But, in a gang. But he, what he doesn't want is to have to take any responsibility for anything at all, mm. you know? And, you know, within a group, there always has to be one or two people who say, this is what we're going to do. Mm. <laughs> and George didn't want to be that person. But he wanted somebody else to do it, so he had to get there with Bob Dylan, Roy Orbison, Jeff Lynn, Tom, Tom Petty, and sort of hope... That somebody would say... Would step up. This, mm. Yeah, would step up. So that George could enjoy what he liked most, which was being in a group, but without having the responsibility yeah. of leading yeah. it. It's a really poignant little it thing is. to see it. it and is. it was interesting that as soon as the Beatles broke up, George went on the road with, with um, Delaney, and Bonnie. Delaney and Bonnie and Eric Clapton, standing in the shadows, playing rhythm guitar, just yeah. to be in a band again. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Got my gang around me. Yeah. So is there anything you've discovered since you've re- you finished the book two years ago? Is there anything you've, uh, you know, if you wrote it again tomorrow, would you change anything? No, I'd, um, I wouldn't. Um, obviously, the story's going to carry on, but I think the fundamental themes are there for eternity. So, um, sad book. Um, wish I hadn't had to write it in a way, but 
as a fan, I felt that the truth needed to be out there. Well, it's a fantastic it's book, and it's a thoroughly good read for anybody interested, but certainly in the Beatles, but just in the in the broader music business, and anybody who's interested in how groups operate and fall apart and so forth. You should, should read, read it, it and enjoy it if you'd never heard a note of their music. Yeah, you'd arrive from Mars and had absolutely no idea who these people were. I'm, I'm, sure, I'm not sure who's got the rights from the Martian. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, I I see you well, don't they, don't <laughs> they say that in contracts? Don't they say in contracts <laughs> and in, in galaxies yet to be discovered? Yeah, yeah, I think, yeah, I think they, they, they say that. Wasn't that the Beatles' actual CD I think, I think contract? I think it was. Can we fine. just get my agent on the phone? Yeah. <laughs> so, Peter, you, you, since then, you've been writing a book about David Bowie, David which Bowie, is coming out in... Which is um, start of October. It is, in effect, um, the successor to Revolution in the Head for David Bowie. Now, as you may know, huh? song by song. Uh, uh, Ian MacDonald was under contract when he died to write the David Bowie book. Oh, I didn't know that. And his editor was my, was my editor. And at some point in discussions, it came up, would you be interested in picking up the torch? And the original idea was um, maybe Ian had half a manuscript, but he didn't. You know, perhaps you could finish it off. Um, he didn't. But by that point, I was sufficiently in, uh, interested to think, this is a, no, a good idea. Um, Ian McDonald's book, you know, you know how it goes. It's very musicological. It's very much about the music. It's not about the lyrics. It doesn't work with Bowie. You have to do musics, lyric, mm. um, concepts, art whatever, fame, stardom, all that stuff together. Starts with Space Oddity, obviously, um, finishes with um, Scary Monsters. There's an appendix with all the 60s songs in there, a lot of which are fascinating. And besides Song by Song, you also get essays on important themes, stardom, fascism, the occult, um, expressionist art, whatever. But so finishes with Scary Monsters? Finishing with Scary Monsters, Why? Yeah. Why? Why? Because Why? that is the end of that particular art project. I think, for me, Lodger and Scary Monsters are the last two records made by a man who has exhausted... He, he can no longer work the way he has worked for that decade. He's worked inspirationally, and so he, he knows it's not working anymore. And so he manages to drag it together with Scary Monsters and say, OK, this is it, I quit. And then, of course, he has two or three years off, um, during which contracts, he can come back and make more money, and he comes back with new hair, new teeth, new body, <laughs> new suits. New eyes. Uh, yeah, everything, yeah. And uh, does Let's Dance, which... Is, is How it? interesting. I, I think, I think the, 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 the listening public would probably agree with that analysis, actually. So, David Bowie, Peter, has he retired? I, I think he has. The, the, there's been no great announcement. But he used to do email interviews um, up until fairly recently, and apparently he won't even do those anymore. Um, and you think about it, what reason has he got to carry on? I mean, he's got nothing left to prove. He's had... Um, terrible ill health when he last time he went he on tour. He had a heart attack. He had a heart attack. Uh, four or five years ago. Yeah, 2004, 2005, the last time he toured. Since when he's just appeared two or three times on stage and done one song and got off. And he, he's, he's got a, a kid, which everybody forgets about. He's got a, a daughter who's, I think, maybe about 11 now. That's right, who takes to school. Um, yeah. And I think he feels guilty about the way that he, he brought up... Um, Joe Duncan. Yes. Joe Duncan. Duncan. Yeah. Sorry, what is it? Zoe. 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 Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that proves the point. <laughs> I think yeah. already we're confused. <laughs> yeah. So is he. <laughs> so, yeah, I think he's retired. Right. Um, I mean, he's talking about, about doing a, bo a book of his memorabilia and, um, you know, song lyrics and things, or maybe a series of books, but uh, it will be somebody else going into a cupboard and he'll just write a couple of words. Yes, what do you think about that? You know, because you, you, you write music books, you must have noticed of late the entry into the market very successfully of things like Bob Dylan's Chronicles and the Keith Richards book, that now these people are getting to the age where they think, yes, I could write my own story. Mm. Um, except in, in Keith's case, of course, he didn't write a word. 
And I know he didn't run away, but I, I, I defend I defend that book because because what his ghostwriter did do was to go out and talk to eighty people yeah. and get the factual information, then go back with the factual information, which reactivated his memory. Mm. I think that's a really you know Mick Jagger would be kicking himself now he didn't use the same principle when, yeah, he, when, when he, he tried, took the advance yeah. and gave it back again because yeah. he didn't remember a fucking thing. And, and of course, the great thing about the Bob Dylan thing is that it's a work of fiction. It's the won the award for the best autobiography. It's a novel and just happens to have his name in it. I'm, I'm not sure I agree with that either. No, do you want to come think, outside? You know, we're, no, we'll do, we'll do <laughs> your no, no, this is no, I, I don't think so because I, 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 I think that the period that the particular the, the particular period is 62, 63, which is in New York, is yeah. the Greenwich Village. I think what he's doing is is slightly fictionalising the details around his memory. He mm. says, "Here I am in a Canal Street, you know, apartment." Smelling of wood alcohol, isn't it? In the leather, <laughs> the, the old leather sofa, mm. which is the back seat of a car. I think he's probably imagining some of those things, but I think the but the basic photograph is correct. That the people were there and the conversations they had were correct, and what he says about himself, I imagine, to be true. Do you, how, how do you think it isn't true? Um, I've seen evidence on the internet that if, if, if you take a copy of Time magazine from 1961, I'm not sure which one it is, and you look at the phrasing used in that issue from 1961, whole, whole chunks of it are reproduced in Chronicles with barely a word altered, so that he is using other people's phrases to describe his New York. And Bob Dylan researchers have tried in vain to find the people that he's writing about, and they don't exist, he's made them up. Uh, obviously, that doesn't apply. Which to... kind of people? Uh, the, the, well, he, he talks about. We're onto a separate podcast. Now. <laughs> oh, good. This is amazing. He, he talk, it's talk... a hidden track. Just when he thought it was all over. Number two hours. Yeah. Um, he t- I haven't read it for ages, but he talks about sharing an apartment with this couple, and maybe one of them is a heroin addict or something. They they didn't exist. He did not share an apartment with those people. That there were those people were not in Greenwich Village when he says they were. So he has fictionalised that whole period of his life. That's not to say... Because nobody that can be found can, can prove that they, they weren't there. I mean, well, it, I yeah, I, I, you never know. The, <laughs> the researchers have spoken to everybody who knew him at that time, apparently, and said... And, and, and they've all said, no, he wasn't. He was staying with me, he was staying there, he was staying there. There was not a period when he was staying with these people who had all the um, French, you know, books on the French Impressionists and symbolist poets or... All the stuff he claims in the book. So, do you think it's excusable on, on the grounds that what he's trying to write is a kind of creative memoir? Hmm. He's trying oh, to, he's trying to yeah. give an idea of what's go, what went on in his head. Yeah, but I'm, and, I'm a, and that's probably true. I'm a firm believer that autobiography can be as creative and fictional as a novel, and maybe it has to be because every every version of our own past is a fiction. Wouldn't it, isn't this what publishers call faction, which is, which is you take yeah. fact and then you novelize? Uh, the basic detail of it. Uh, yes, I but think the essential story is. I think that's right. True. But I'm interested as to why he's done it. Whether it was purely for money. Whether because he's laying himself bare at the same time as he's covering himself up and the way he always has done. <laughs> yeah. Well, the reason he did it. Um, are we extending this podcast? <laughs> the reason he did it, according to um, uh, Bill Flanagan, a mm. mate of ours, who's the VH1. Yeah. Um, creative director was that he was commissioned to write the sleeve notes for three oh, right. yeah. um, okay. re-releases New Morning which were New Morning Oh Mercy and Bob first, Dylan yeah, first yeah. record right. and being Dylan he rolled a piece of A4 into a Remington 
lit up a. Uh, yeah, I'm doing it myself now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. lit up a high tar cigarette and just simply could not stop writing mm. this stuff. It just came out in reams, and they said, "Well, this is absolutely pointless to reduce this into a little booklet and a CD reissue. Let's just assume these are randomly the first three chapters in the story of your life, and let's put them up." And out, and you will you will write the next chapter some other time. I don't know the story, but I think there is a story to be told, and it will be told when, when Dylan's dead about the writing of Chronicles, in terms of what he delivered originally, what then happened to that manuscript, who looked at it, who improved it, whether Dylan re- wrote extra bits of it. I don't know. It wasn't written by Donovan, was it? Is that what you're saying? Because <laughs> no, this is not he, going out of hand. I'm well, yeah. feeling quite upset now. When he has to... was no Father Christmas. <laughs> But you do have to remember that Donovan did, did form the Beatles as well. So, and he also invented psychedelia and punk. <laughs> yeah. Punk, I think. I think Donovan, yes, yeah. very much so. Yeah. That, that's my memory. That, so anyway, PZ, you've done your David Bowie book. Who's next? Um, nobody. Nobody. What well, you've retired from? Writing I have not retired from writing. No, I'm not going to write another book for the moment, at least about a, a particular artist. Um, it's quite. Um, elevating living your life vicariously through one person for a couple of years or one group of people. So I should be writing, i definitely be writing, I'll be writing other things and some of them will be music related, but it's not going to be a bio- biography. Okay, well, Peter, thanks very much for coming Thank in. Thanks so much for coming And we look forward to your, your David Bowie book in October. October 2011. Has it yeah. got a title? It's called The Man Who Sold the World, David Bowie and the 1970s. <laughs> If you've been affected by any of the issues in this podcast, go to wordmagazine.co.uk or apply at your newsagent. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 